2: Hello, and welcome to the modern adventurer podcast where explorers and adventurers tell their stories. As I'm having my lunch, I feel stones start to fall away from the railway and suddenly out of nowhere, these two armed guards armed to the teeth run down the railway track, pointing their guns straight at me. I'm just about to have my lunch. And suddenly I'm told to identify myself. So today marks the one year anniversary of the podcast, and it has come so fast from exactly a year ago. I was in this room talking to Charlie Walker about his incredible experience cycling four years around the world. Over the course of the year, I have spoken to so many incredible adventurers and explorers, but this episode is going to be a little bit different. It's me talking about one of my trips. And this is just one of my stories from back a few years ago when I decided to run 27 marathons in a month across Kenya. And this is the story of that trip. It was embarking upon what one of my friends described as the stupidest idea he had ever heard of. The idea was simple though. It was to run from Mount Elgon on the Ugandan border to Khalifi on the Kenyan coast, a distance to say of running from here in London to Paris and then turning around and coming back again. Why did he think this was such a stupid idea? Well, partly because I really wasn't much of a runner. In fact, I'd never run a marathon before in my life, and now I was proposing to run 27 in a month in the heat of Africa solo and unsupported. So looking back, it was probably a bit of a stupid idea. It also didn't help that I hadn't given myself that much time to prepare. They say to run one marathon, you need about six months to sort of prepare your body for it. I, on the other hand had given myself three months to train for 27 marathons. And then there was the fact that I just accepted a new job offer. And I'd have to explain to them that one month after starting, I was going to have to take two months off or seven weeks to go and run across Kenya armed with very little knowledge. And let's say a backpack full of assumptions. I quickly learned on day one, what a quick Google search would have told me was that Kenya in the north is not very flat. I'd planned to start on Mount Elgon on the Ugandan border, which at an altitude of 2,500 meters is higher than any European ski resort. The scenery was beautiful. It had this sort of big rolling waves of Hills, beautiful green forest and farmland and these sort of dusty roads. However, it wasn't exactly the easiest place to do your first marathon every step I took was either going steeply uphill or very steeply downhill. It also, I remember at the time it was actually quite a dodgy area. A friend of mine had given me like a report on the sort of safety of the area. And it was quite a dodgy area. I, it was some sort of tribal dispute between the tribes up there and I, I can't even tell you. So with this, I had to be escorted for the first 20 kilometers, but despite all the problems that had occurred, things started really well. I had people waving to me. I had children running beside me. I I even had some guys stop and sing to me. To this day, I still have no idea what he was singing about. However, trying to complete your first marathon or ultra marathon on a mountain was hard. And it really was the first day was really tough. And then the second day I had to get up and do another 60 kilometers because I had talked about doing this to everyone. I suppose the notions of slightly over promising and under delivering set in. And I probably felt that I might have bitten off more than I could chew. Another big challenge at the start was the food sitting at home in England, planning this trip. I would sort of look on Google maps and, you know, pinpoint different areas to look at and see that I could maybe stop at that village and this village to find lunch or things to eat. However, up in the north in these towns, it's not exactly overflowing with nice restaurants or supermarkets. When I got up there and I was sort of running along when I got to these towns, which i had earmarked as like, okay, you stop here for lunch. They were nothing more than a wooden hut with avocados and bananas. And so to run all day on just an avocado or a banana was really challenging at the start. But despite all that, I soon got into some sort of rhythm, getting up early each morning, running all day, staying in sort of hotels and lodges. It helped that there were such amazing things to look at while I was running. People think that sort of Africa is this really dry, dusty place, but a lot of it is beautifully green and passing through the countryside on foot was an amazing experience. You know, if I was just in a car, you'd be going along at sort of 60 miles an hour, whizzing past all these little villages and towns. And there would just be a sort of blur in the background, but on foot, you actually got to experience the sort of real Kenya. In a sense, you got the smells, the sort of taste, the people who you sort of met along the way. I remember on the seventh day when I just run about 30 kilometers in the morning and I was absolutely knackered. And so I lay under a tree to get some rest just around the sort of midday sun. And as I lay there, some kids started to sort of crowd around me. There wasn't very many. It was probably eight or 10, but they didn't want doing anything. They were just staring at me. I didn't really know how to sort of interact with them. Um, And after a while I just got up and started walking and running on or jogging on and they began to follow. And when I turned around that group of eight had suddenly become. 20 and they were laughing and giggling as they sort of ran behind me. I, (laughs) while I was running, I sort of got chatting to them, trying to sort of interact with them. And they kept sort of pinching my arm and pulling my hair. I wasn't quite sure if they'd ever like, I wasn't quite sure if they'd ever seen like a white person up close in person before they asked me to come and see their school. And I was like, well, you know, I've got another 40. 30 40 kilometers to cover today and your hills up on your school is up on that hill uh, 2 kilometers out my way but hey why not this is these are the sort of moments that make these sort of trips incredible and and so I took the detour up to their school but when i got there there were hundreds of children there shouting mazungu mazungu which is white person in swahili and there they were. And now I had sort of a hundred kids wanting to sort of touch me and pinch my skin. While well, one of the teachers came to me and sort of just asked if I wanted to be shown around the school. And I of course accepted. I mean, I'd been running through these sort of. Villages with mud huts and this school was really modern. It was very glass, like it, it looked completely out of place in the middle of the sort of Kenyan countryside. You know, this, this building wouldn't have been anything different from something you might see in central London. After I had sort of spoken with the teachers and said my goodbyes to the kids, I carried on for the day and carried on down towards sort of Eldoret and Nairobi, a special day was the day I visited Lewa children's orphanage in the Eldoret district. It was about the halfway point between Mount Elgon and Nairobi. One of the reasons I undertook this project was to raise money for the children's orphanage there and running through it made the whole experience really sort of special, you know, seeing where the kids lived and the amazing work that Phyllis Kano does up there for the children made the whole experience really personal. No, I mean, there were a lot of times where things were really tough for me on this trip and having that in the back of my mind really sort of inspired me to sort of carry on sort of gave me the strength to always keep going, no matter how tough things got. So for the first week or so things went well, surprisingly well, don't get me wrong. Like running every day pounding against the hard Kenyan roads was really tough, but uh, you know, I was sort of getting up and doing the distance and it seemed to, it seemed to work fine. But then on day eight, things started to go really badly for me. I had a sort of pain in my left calf, my right quad, I think had a dead leg. And I remember turning in off the road onto a dirt track. And then spraining my ankle. I I rested up for the night, but I didn't really have much choice. I had to sort of just carry on. So strapped it up and kept doing the miles. The dead leg eventually went, but my left calf just caused me agony for the rest of the trip. And just when I was coping with my leg, I reached the town of Lake Elementita, which is this beautiful lake between Nakuru and Naivasha. And when I was there, I was staying with this family who decided to take me to what do you call it? Naya Choma, which was their favorite restaurant. It was like a barbecue shack in town with food so fresh, there were like chickens running under your feet. And I remember as the food arrived in front of me, I think it was chicken and goat and maybe beef. I can just hear my father's words to me before I left with whatever you do, just do not eat the street food, but doing marathon after marathon, you are like a sort of ravenous Labrador. You are so hungry. And so you just Hoover anything that is put in front of you, which is exactly what I did. And just, just to prove my father, right. I got food poisoning really bad. I was thrown up all night um, and I don't think I need to go into too much detail about anything else. But then in the morning when I got up, I tried to hide the fact that I was ill. And then as soon as I said, good morning, I was thrown up again, but any sane person would have just decided to stay in bed, recover, try and get better, but I I had a target. I wanted to complete this trip in under a month. And that's basically what I needed to do. So I got up with no food and decided to run another marathon. But covering that distance that day was one of the toughest days I ever had. So many times I would look over my shoulder and think, God, I, I should go back. But in my mind. It was just telling me just keep doing another two kilometers, just do another kilometer. When I got to Naivasha, I was actually surprisingly. Okay. I think I was just completely high on adrenaline or something, but I still hadn't eaten anything all day. And someone had very kindly put me up for the night. And as I sort of came into their house, there was like a giraffe in with its head in the house. As Soon as it saw me, it got a complete fright and ran off. But seeing stuff like that certainly made me feel there was a reason to sort of go on. However, the food poisoning stayed with me and then the following day I was meant to run twenty no fifty-five kilometers up the escarpment. But after nearly twenty-four hours, thirty-six hours of eating nothing, I I had no energy to sort of even just about get out of bed. So I spent the day recovering, not the best guest, but I spoke to a doctor who, who told me that my legs were severe shin splints and his his advice was really simple. It was stop running. It's only going to get worse. I obviously thanked him for his advice and completely ignored it. I'm not going to sugarcoat what the days were like getting to Nairobi. They were a really dark one for me. And for quite a lot of time, I didn't really see any light at the end of the tunnel with little or no food to sort of go on my sugar levels plummeted and I just fell into a completely, utterly depressed state, just questioning every single step to why I should go on, but Reaching Nairobi gave me a real boost. It was the halfway point. As you could probably imagine, I was in really rough shape by then. And when I arrived in Nairobi to be greeted by a friend, and their flatmate, who I had met two weeks earlier, opened the door and was just like, Can I help you? But she didn't even recognize me. I had lost so much weight. And then running in a city was also really intimidating. You had gone through the last two weeks running in the countryside and suddenly you were contending with buses and motorcycles and just so many people, but it was a bit of an adrenaline rush. Another memorable experience came on my way out of Nairobi. When the former president of Kenya had got wind of my story and reached out and wanted to see if he could help. I wasn't really sure what to expect. I, he said, you know, come over to my office and I was sort of expecting a handshake and a pat on the back and sort of well done and bear in mind, I, I had no clothes other than my running stuff. So I had to turn up in my running gear with all these suits. And when I got there, he shook my hand and then sort of told me about my experiences. And then suddenly goes, well, let's go meet the media. I was sort of expecting, you know, the local paper with sort of schoolboy doing a little piece or something but no this was full-blown conference with every single tv station print media there and i'm sitting up right next to him and without hesitating he just goes john why don't you uh, tell them what you're doing and i was like completely speechless and try to sort of string a few sentences together about what I was doing and why but it just couldn't help. but maybe wish I had sort of brushed up a bit on a speech or something. If I had known coming out of Nairobi, things still continue to be pretty tough. Uh, I was taking a lot of painkillers by then sort of questioning like how long I'd be able to go on for, I was still doing sort of 40, 50, 60 kilometers every day, approaching the coast the uh, the scenery started to change it, the altitude dropped and it became a lot hotter and drier, not the sort of lush green that I'd had in the north. As I approached the National Park, home of the man eating lions of the Sabo. For anyone who knows the story, I thought I would inquire about what I needed to run through a park. You know, if the last two weeks had taught me anything, it's maybe the lack of preparation had cost me a little bit. So I decided to call what, who I believe might be the sort of head of the park and asked him if I needed like a knife or a gun to sort of run through the park, he sort of laughed at me, basically implying that I'd be absolutely fine running through the park by myself. So I was like, great. So the next day I got up at 5. AM crossed into DeSavo national park and started running. And I've got twenty five kilometres before suddenly this Land Rover pulls up next to me, winds down its window, and they just stare at me intently. And then go, What are you doing? I I then explain to them like, Oh, well, you know, I'm running across the country and I thought I would just, you know, run. They look at me like I'm a complete idiot and they're just like, get in the van, you're not allowed. So they take me back to where I start and they say that I have to be escorted to go and run through the park. So for that day, I am just inquiring about who I can get, and luckily I managed to organize a escort for the following day at sort of 10 o'clock the following day. I had a Land Rover with four Rangers armed with AK 47s going along beside me as i ran through the park for 50 or 60 kilometers going at i don't know 5 10 kilometers and i mean so slowly i just felt so sorry for them unfortunately on my trip i as i ran through the park i didn't see any sort of majestic elephants roam past me or see a sort of lion on the rocks but I think the only scare was like a sort of baboon who wouldn't let me pass. And so I had to sort of cross the road, bit boring, but probably much to the relief of my escort that no guns were fired on that day. So throughout my trip, I have had like the most incredible experiences, real tough times, but another really interesting moment came on day 30. So we're getting towards the end of the trip. It was lunchtime and I sort of just, and I was sort of running down the road parallel between the train track and the road. And I sort of pulled over to the side and found myself under a tree completely by myself, just about to have my lunch. And as I'm having my lunch, I feel the stones start to fall away from the railway. And suddenly out of nowhere, these two armed guards armed to the teeth run down the railway track, pointing their guns straight at me. I'm just about to have my lunch. And suddenly I'm told to identify myself after handing in my ID and sort of telling them what I was doing. They sort of said that I was probably in the country illegally and that I could be a terrorist, but then they made me strip my backpack. And bear in mind, this is day 30 and I only have one set of clothes, maybe two or three boxes, a couple of socks. That's it, not much else. So they made me strip my bag and like take each piece out. So one by one, i would sort of take out a sock and the gun would sort of raise as I take it out and then they'd be like, what is that? And I'd be like, it's, it's a sock, put it on the dirt road. Then another one. These are my pants. They'd be like that. Put, pull another thing out. He'd be like, what's that? It's the other sock. I mean, I, I literally had nothing. It was only when all my stuff was on the floor, which they were happy that I wasn't a threat and slightly lowered their guard. They then tried to imply that I could have been a terrorist. And I tried to explain to them if they'd ever seen a terrorist like me, you know, wearing lycra shorts a running top and a little small backpack. I was a bit stunned by the events, but on day 32, the end was in sight. The Indian ocean as I ran was there in the distance, like a sort of honeymoon postcard. It was beautiful white, sandy beaches. It was a boiling hot day and blue turquoise water. And by that point I had sort of done a month of pretty much non-stop running and I could hardly stand at that point. But after 1,250 kilometers in 32 days, I ran fully clothed into the water. It was a great relief to know I had finished. I'd lost six kilograms in weight. My legs were just getting worse and worse by the day. And I did look a bit of a mess, like some sort of crazy bearded hobo. It was a great relief to know I had finished, but in a strange way, it was also kind of sad because although this run had been incredibly challenging, it had also been like a life changing experience, every little interaction along the way, whether good or bad with the truckers, the policemen, just kept me going to sort of see what was around the corner. There wasn't so much a fear of failure, but a fear of missing like the next big thing along the way. And although this was a solo and supported journey, I I never felt alone running across Kenya. The generosity of the Kenyan people who didn't have a lot to sort of give would come, go out of their way to sort of show me what Kenya was all about. You know, they would be running with me, give me food to eat, give me a place to stay. And they would just sort of go out of their way to sort of help and support me. But the biggest lesson I learned was probably about myself. Don't get me wrong. Like waking up. I can't tell you how torturous it is to wake up every morning, knowing that you've got another marathon ahead of you, but running day after day. Endurance is more a mental as it is physical sport. I could always keep going, even as my body was just slowly over the days breaking down. As long as I had the willpower to keep going, I I always could. So if there's one thing to take home from this story is that there are no shortcuts to elation. Anything worth pursuing is going to require you to suffer just a little bit because I don't think it's worth doing otherwise. When I was at my lowest ebb, Hungry, depressed, in the middle of Kenya just before Nairobi, I got a message from one of my Instagram followers who gave me a really nice message of support. I read on her bio this quote that I suppose stayed with me throughout. It's a sort of very famous Winston Churchill one, but it went, Success is not final, failure is not fatal. It is always the courage to continue that counts. And that is probably the quote that will stay with me throughout. So that's my story from Kenya. It was an incredible trip an experience that I will never forget for the rest of my life. And, you know, some of the people I've met along the way, you know, I'm still in contact with now and it's, it opened up so many friendships and opportunities there. And I've just absolutely, I look back on that trip, although my legs don't.
1: Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.
2: So on the podcast, I always ask the same five questions to each guest. And I suppose I can't be any different. Uh, What is the one gadget that I would always take with me would be probably a camera. I think uh, I love photography. I love capturing moments. That stay with you and they always jog your memory. My favourite adventure book or travel book—I can't remember the number of times *Lord of the Rings* has occurred on this podcast. But for me, at the moment, it's a difficult one. But at the moment, I'm reading *Heat* by Sarana Fines, which is great. And after that, I think I'm going to try Megan Hines's *Mind of a Survivor*, which I think is a fascinating—will be a fascinating read. Uh, who we had on the podcast just, just a few months ago. Next one is why are adventures important to you? I think adventures are important because you learn so much about yourself. They put you in an uncomfortable situation at the best of times and through that you learn so much. And I think it's a great schooling in terms of for future life when you are in difficult situations in everyday life, knowing by putting yourself in those terrible situations makes you more adaptable to when things go wrong. That's probably the best way I can sort of say it. And they're also great fun as I think Livia Samoka said, type two fun. When, when things go wrong, that's usually when the most exciting and the best stories come from the adventures. Uh, my favorite quotes. My favorite quote is probably that Winston Churchill one that I just said. Success is not final, failure is not fatal. It is always the courage to continue that counts. But I also like comfort and growth cannot coexist. And the other one is don't wait for the storm to pass, learn to dance in the rain. I think it's a great one, which I heard quite a few years ago. That's that's always stuck with me throughout. And finally, what would I recommend for people wanting to get started? Well, it would always be start local. There is so much opportunities where I am in the UK, there is abundance of adventures and I'm sure wherever you're listening in the world, just around the corner, there is awesome stuff to be had as a starting place. It is just phenomenal. And here in the UK, you've got where I am in London, you know, there are many, many adventures on the river out at sea up in the in the districts, national parks, wherever it is, there are all sorts of adventures to be had. And if you can't think of anything, take Alistair Humphreys walking around the M 25, which is a motorway in the UK, which for anyone listening, who knows the M 25 It just sounds hell on earth, but he managed to have quite the adventure around there. So whatever you can think, there's always adventures to be had. And finally, what is next? What is next is at the moment, hopefully I am working on a potential documentary um, next year across Europe where I will be going to some of the most remote spots off the beaten track in Europe to look at sustainable tourism. And this will be a long documentary with seven other people involved traveling all over Europe, seeing some of the most phenomenal places, which are always off the tourist map and showing you. Some amazing places, which you probably won't see in the lonely planet or anywhere on the maps. And we'll be highlighting these incredible communities and showing a different side to tourism in Europe. So I hope you enjoyed it. Let me know what you thought of it. And I, I've absolutely loved doing this podcast. It has been so much fun and just speaking to some of the most incredible people. Most incredible explorers and adventurers out there who are pushing their own limits of endurance and breaking records along the way. So I hope over the next year to be speaking to a lot more people with more incredible stories to tell. And if you've got any recommendations about who you want to see on the podcast, then please let me know. I'm always looking for inspiration and I would love to hear who you want to hear on the podcast. So I hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you did, please subscribe and follow the podcast for the future episodes. You can watch the podcast on YouTube as always, and it always goes out onto Apple, Spotify, Google, whichever podcast platform you listen on, but I hope to see you next week for another fascinating tale of adventure this time with Jasmine Harrison, who became the youngest female to row solo across the Atlantic that'll be next week's episode, but till then have a great day and happy adventures.
0: You know, how to book flights and hotels.